Welcome to Brain and Avert. We're delighted to be joined by Toby Young, who is the founder of the Free Speech Union and also a veteran journalist. Toby, would you like to tell us about a real-life case of journalism in strife? Yes, I've got quite a good example, which is yesterday, Tuesday, the 27th of September, in the United Kingdom, a consultant cardiologist called Dr. Asim Malhotra gave a press conference to publicize a paper that he's just published in a peer-reviewed medical journal called Journal of Insulin Resistance, in which he argues that the risks of taking the mRNA COVID vaccines, unless you happen to be in a vulnerable category, outweigh the benefits. And what's interesting about him is he was, until last year, a zealous advocate for the COVID vaccines and appeared on British television to urge people to take them and to persuade them not to be hesitant and to assure people that they were safe and effective. What changed his mind is that his own father died shortly after taking one of the mRNA vaccines. And that triggered a kind of voyage of discovery for him in which he delved into the trial data that Moderna and Pfizer have published and looked at all the reports of vaccine harms in the US and the UK and eventually concluded that for most people, the risks outweigh the benefits and recommends that until more research is done that the vaccination program uh, is halted across the world. And not a single journalist from a mainstream publication attended this press conference and his findings have been reported nowhere in the mainstream media. They've only been reported in places like The Daily Skeptic, which is a website that I set up at the beginning of the lockdown hysteria, at the beginning of April 2020. But the mainstream media will not touch anyone, any story, any findings, even in a peer-reviewed medical journal that casts the slightest doubt on the efficacy and safety of the mRNA COVID vaccines. It's a topic which you're not allowed to talk openly about unless you tow the official line. And I think it's typical, actually, of a range of topics that within the mainstream media, on social media platforms, even in the, even in the workplace, there are now certain views you're not allowed to express. There are certain shibboleths that you're not allowed to be skeptical about. And they are, broadly speaking, casting any doubt, expressing any reservations at all about the efficacy and safety of the COVID vaccines, challenging the climate emergency hypothesis, asking questions about the wisdom of the lockdown policy and associated COVID restrictions, challenging any of the core sacred ideas of the kind of wokest day cult, such as the idea that Britain is systemically racist or that university campuses are hotbeds of sexual harassment and assault. You know, you'll be familiar with the usual topics falling under the heading of kind of woke, sacred ideas that you're simply not allowed to challenge. So there are a range of ideas now that you're simply not allowed to discuss openly, a range of dogmatic 
principles that you simply cannot challenge within the mainstream media. And if you challenge them on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, you risk being demonetized, deplatformed. And it's now got to the extent that financial services companies are beginning to deplatform people for expressing those sorts of views. So Coots, one of the oldest British banks, and it's the bank of the royal family, recently changed its terms and conditions, whereby it now reserves the right to close the accounts of customers who engage in discriminatory behavior, whatever that might mean. And of course, I recently experienced this when PayPal told me that it was closing my personal account as well as the accounts of the Daily Skeptic and the Free Speech Union. And only after I kicked up an almighty fuss and some politicians rode in behind me did PayPal relent and reopen those accounts. But we see examples of this kind of uh, the emergence of a Chinese style social credit system across the West, which is, I think, the most pernicious form that censorship of this particular group of dissenting views takes. So in an ideal world, how would you want the dissemination of information to work? I take it that at the moment we've got massively partial distribution networks on both sides of most issues. So you get the CNNs of the world giving massively left-leaning interpretations on issues, and then you get the Breitbart of the world giving massively right-leaning interpretations on issues. Is that the right way to go about things? Should you have these organizations that are massively polarized and then fighting to ascertain some truth in the middle or maybe some truth on one of the sides? Should it be a war or should there be sort of a more impartial way of reporting on issues? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a free market conservative, so I'm perfectly happy with lots of different organizations taking different views and being partial in different ways and hopefully countering each other out. I think the reason what I'm objecting to, I suppose, is that it's no longer a level playing field. If companies like PayPal, big tech platforms like YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook say to people who challenge, you know, progressive orthodoxy, that they're going to be kicked off their platforms, demonetized cancelled, then it's very difficult to have a kind of open marketplace of ideas. And that's what I'm objecting to. I'm perfectly happy for websites like The Daily Skeptic to emerge, to challenge the dominance of mainstream websites associated with large media companies like The New York Times and The Guardian. And I think they can do that in spite of the fact that they're quite small. The internet makes that possible. The barriers to entry are mercifully quite low. And if you produce a good product, you can attract a lot of readers and you can fund those websites if you produce a good product fairly easily. And The Daily Skeptic now attracts something like 2 million page views a month, which is getting up there with some of the big newspapers in this country. But if companies like PayPal are going to whip out the rug from under you and say, from now on, you can't use our payment processing systems, which in the case of the Daily Skeptic affected about 25% of our regular donors, then that means that we're no longer competing on a level playing field. We can't compete with organizations like the New York Times and the Guardian and CNN. So that's what I'm objecting to. It's that the, the social media platforms, the payment processing platforms, they should be neutral. They shouldn't try and be combatants in these political cultural wars. They should be, you know, referees, but not players. That's where I think we've got into trouble. 
But it's going to be quite hard for you to maintain that position because who ensures that neutrality? If you're truly a free market conservative, then you've got to say these companies can do whatever they want, right? So there should be other companies that compete, that perhaps take a different stance or are more neutral or more right-leaning. But who's going to police the Facebooks or the YouTubes or the PayPals of the world, if not a government? And as soon as government steps in, you no longer have this free market. Yeah, well, I'm not such a free market purist that I think private companies should be allowed to discriminate against their users, against customers on the basis of their sexual orientation or the color of their skin or their religious beliefs. And by the same token, I don't think they should be allowed to discriminate against people on the basis of their political beliefs either, provided those beliefs are perfectly lawful. So I think you can make, you know, an anti-discrimination case for maintaining the political neutrality of these private companies without encroaching too much. So it seems that you can have a landscape where you allow for a, a number of different ideas to flourish and then people can compete with each other. But there's a separate question about what journalists ought to be doing and whether they have fidelity towards the facts or an obligation to tell the whole truth as opposed to leaving certain things out. And the example that you start with is where you say there's something of great importance, which is, you know, a peer-reviewed publication on the efficacy of vaccines, which seems like it's in the public interest. And there's something alarming about the mainstream press not covering it at all. Or let's say, if you had the BBC or whoever it is writing a story about vaccines and omitting that information, you might think that they're failing in their duty. There's something different about, let's say, expressing a normative stance on something where you're expressing an opinion as opposed to taking a view on the facts. How hamstrung do you think journalists ought to be in the presentation of a story? I'm not sure how hard and fast that distinction is. I mean, one of the difficulties, I think, that websites like The Daily Skeptic run into is that often we will present or interpret some facts in a way which a fact-checking company labels as false or misleading. And companies like Facebook will rely on those fact-checking companies to decide whether or not to suppress or ban your accounts. And in turn, companies like NewsGuard, which give a kind of wholesomeness ranking to different websites, which affects whether they can get advertising, will rely on those fact-checking sites too. And in almost every case where we've been chastised, where the Daily Skeptic, an article on the Daily Skeptic has been chastised by a fact-checking company, it's not straightforwardly misstating a fact or getting a fact wrong or inventing something out of whole cloth. It's to do with how you interpret a particular fact or what other facts you put it alongside or whether you contextualize it in a way that the fact-checking company thinks you should. And ultimately, you know, it's only because the views of the fact-checking company are completely at odds. The views of the fact-checkers are completely at odds with yours on these issues, whether it be climate change or the safety of the vaccines, that they invoke this idea that there is just one acceptable, they didn't even use the word acceptable, it's just that there was one correct interpretation of the data in these particular areas. And if you interpret the data in another way, it's not a difference of opinion. You know, you are wrong. You're telling a lie. And they're almost, you know, invoking this almost naive view 
of factualness and truthfulness. I mean, I'm not an epistemological relativist by any stretch, but they're sort of invoking what, what philosophers might call naive realism in order to try and discredit what they regard as an unacceptable point of view. And it, it, what's so odd is that they kind of, on the one hand, profess to believe in this naive realism, but on the other hand, they probably think at the same time that appeals to objectivity and truth and fact and data is a kind of symptom of white supremacy. I mean, they sort of simultaneously buy into a kind of postmodernist critique of epistemological realism, whilst at the same time appealing to this unbelievably naive realism themselves in order to try and discredit your interpretation of the facts about the climate emergency or whatever it might be. So what do you think a fair way for a journalist to establish what is actually true is? What are the boundaries in which they're entitled to go? So if you say it's not relativism, it's not, in other words, whatever you believe to be true is true, but you're also concerned about a Pravda-style, you know, this fact-checker says this is what's true and we've established it and it cannot be questioned. There's some space in between those two things. And I imagine there's cases where someone says, look, we don't know, or reasonable people differ on in the interpretation of the data. And there's some things which we know. They're obvious or they're, the consensus is so large that no one really disagrees with it or no one seriously disagrees with it. How much scope should there be for the journalist to write about it? I mean, I think consensus is an unreliable guide to the truthfulness of a particular hypothesis. You know, we could give you a variety of examples, but I don't think I need to. But I'm not sure there should be hard and fast rules as to what journalists should and shouldn't be permitted to write. And I'm not objecting even to the existence of fact-checking organizations or even the overwhelming progressive bias of those organizations. My objection is to the influence of those fact-checking organizations, whereby they can present an opinion that they disagree with as factually unreliable in such a way that it will effectively put the website publishing that opinion out of business. They shouldn't be allowed to do that. I think it's up to the users of news websites to determine how reliable and accurate the information published on those websites is and to disentangle statements of fact from expressions of opinion. And I would hope that in the case of the Daily Skeptic, if we make a factual claim, we will source it wherever possible. We'll link to peer-reviewed scientific journals. We know that when we challenge the consensus on a topic like the efficacy and safety of the mRNA vaccines, that we need to make a particularly strong case because people will be gunning for us and we'll also be trying to dissuade people of a view that they might hold. So I think we're much more scrupulous and careful than most other websites when setting out our arguments. So I wouldn't ban InfoWars, for instance, on the grounds that it's trafficking in conspiracy theories and disinformation, if that's what it's doing. I'd trust ordinary people to make up their own minds about what is and isn't a conspiracy theory. Even if there was a wholly reliable, politically neutral way of identifying conspiracy theories, misinformation, disinformation, I don't think that would be a good reason to suppress it because suppressing it doesn't actually end up persuading people that it isn't true. I mean, a good example, I read a piece about this recently, but a good example is the conspiracy theory that Biden stole the 2020 presidential election from Donald Trump, the steal. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube have been energetically 
suppressing any expressions of that particular conspiracy theory almost since the insurrection in the capital on January 6th of 2021. But actually, if you look at the number of people who believe in this deal now compared to January the 7th, 2021, more people believe it now than did then. So the suppression of it by those social media platforms has actually had the opposite of its intended effect. And I think, you know, if things which are obviously untrue, like the steel, let people make the argument, let people set out their stall in the public square so it can be rebutted and debunked in the public square. For the same reason, I don't think that Holocaust denial should be suppressed. Something which is obviously baloney should be put out there so people can see other people rebut it and refute it with reason and evidence. Now, if you put on your free speech union hat and you think about the importance of protecting speech, and you've given us a very good example of why you might even want people to be free to say things that are false, that they can be correct in the marketplace of ideas. Do you think that there are limits on speech? Are you concerned about speech where there's a call to action, where someone is calling for a particular group to be, to be killed, let's say? or where there are views that are particularly offensive. So you can imagine the Man-Boy Love Association advocating for older men to be in sexual relationships with young boys. Should they be disallowed from expressing those views? Where do you see the limits of speech? I think those limits are things like child pornography, obscenity more generally, libel, state secrets. And I guess I, I quite like the standard invoked by the US Supreme Court, and I think Brandenburg versus the state of Ohio in 1969, which is that the only speech that the state can legitimately prescribe is speech which is going to lead to imminent lawless action. I think the reason free speech is under assault at the moment, insofar as there is a kind of rational basis for that assault, a lot of it I think is politically motivated, but is that certain forms of speech, according to those who want to prohibit it, will cause harm, where harm is quite broadly defined. So they appeal to J.S. Mill's harm principle, but firmly reject the idea that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. So for instance, trans rights activists will claim that allowing a gender critical feminist a platform on a university campus will actually cause them harm. And it's not always clear what they mean by that. Sometimes they mean it might lead to trans people self-harming, but at other times they seem to mean something less dramatic than that. They seem to mean that merely allowing a gender-critical feminist onto the campus will make them feel unsafe and will cause them anxiety. And that in itself is a species of harm which should be taken sufficiently seriously by the university authorities whereby they prevent the gender critical feminist from speaking. And we've actually gone to bat for several GC feminists who have been no platform for that reason on university campuses in the UK at the Free Speech Union. And I think that obviously I'm skeptical about that broad and nebulous definition of harm. And that's why I quite like the imminent lawless action standard, because it suggests that it's not enough for someone to feel offended or for speech to affect their well-being or how safe they feel in a particular place. You know, if it's going to cause imminent lawless action and violence in particular, then yes. But if it's not going to meet that standard, then we shouldn't restrict it. 
Do you think this threat of imminent lawless action applies equally on both the left and the right? Or do you think that curbing of speech is more a problem coming from one side or the other? I mean, the problem with imminent lawless action is it's a slightly circular definition because the lawless action in question could be the expression of certain dissenting points of view, if that's against the law. So it's not a kind of watertight, <laughs> perfect standard by any means. But I think in the case of the US Supreme Court, that standard has been more likely to have restricted right-wing groups than left-wing groups. Though I think the kind of neo-harm principle certainly is invoked more often to restrict the speech of people on the right than people on the left. I mean, interestingly, there's a good example of this actually yesterday in the UK when Rupa Huck, a Labour MP, was surreptitiously recorded at a fringe meeting at the Labour Party conference saying that Quasi Quartang, the Eton and Oxford educated Chancellor of the Exchequer, but a Black Britain of African heritage, didn't sound like a black man to her. And she sort of implied, if not quite boldly stated, that because he didn't have certain views that she thought people of colour should have, because he's a conservative, then he wasn't a proper black man. And that is a kind of woke racism. And if Quasi Kwarteng was so minded, and I'm sure he isn't, he could claim that he felt harmed by Rupa Huck saying that and that she should be banned from Twitter for hate speech. But of course, that kind of hate speech is not the kind of hate speech which is generally prohibited on social media. It's hate speech coming from the other side of the political aisle that's prohibited. So interesting, in South Africa at the moment, we have a bill that's pending that would restrict speech that's harmful and harmful would include social and cultural harms. And I'd sort of been pondering to myself what a cultural harm was. And then I was rewarded with an answer today. The BBC reported on a case of a woman who's been jailed for six years in Myanmar because she had an OnlyFans account which showed pictures of herself and the Burmese authorities described it as cultural harm and have incarcerated her. And this is the worry. Once you start to stretch these terms of what counts as harmful, you're creating a weapon and it might lead to people that you would think of as allies or as good people being yeah. jailed. Yeah. And obviously there are examples in China too, where, I mean, the people, the doctors who blew the whistle, um, when COVID-19 emerged in late 2019 were rounded up and imprisoned by the Chinese authorities for engaging in antisocial behavior. And had they not been, they might've been able to nip the outbreak in the bud in Wuhan back in December, 2019 and saved tens of millions of lives. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it clearly is a law that can very quickly be weaponized by the authorities to suppress and punish dissent. And what's so odd is that why aren't members of the progressive left who are lobbying, campaigning for these laws, why are they so happy to trust the authorities to get this sort of thing right? And if it's not the authorities, why do they trust big tech corporations based in California to get these decisions right? I mean, it's odd that members of the progressive left who historically have been rather suspicious of states and multinational corporations having too much power and being able to suppress dissent, suddenly trusting them to get these kind of calls right. 
and imagining that that we'll live in a kind of culturally kind of purer atmosphere if these pesky dissenters are got rid of. I mean, it's just, it's the naivety is breathtaking. Do you think lawlessness is really the bar we should set though? So suppose some speech which we know is false will produce very negative outcomes that are lawful. So for example, let's just assume for a moment, and I know that maybe you don't agree with these assumptions, but let's assume for the moment that COVID is a very serious disease, that the vaccines really work, or at some point during the course of the, the, the pandemic that they really worked, and that all you need is to strike a match and this idea that they don't work spreads, and then people don't get vaccinated, and a disease that could have been kept under control doesn't. That has been the case with some other diseases that are less controversial, like smallpox. You know, they were virtually eliminated from the face of this earth, but because of vaccine skepticism, suddenly they're starting to pop up again. Do you think, even though it is not unlawful to refuse to take the vaccine, that we should, that there's still at least a reason to dissuade people from promoting those views? Mm. Probably the best argument for suppressing vaccine skepticism is that um, it may cause real life harm. Uh, and that was the argument also made against uh, suppressing skepticism about the efficacy of the lockdowns and associated COVID restrictions. If people didn't observe the restrictions, then people would die. And when the Daily Skeptic originally was called Lockdown Skeptics, and often people would say, I've got blood on my hands because I've discouraged people from observing the COVID restrictions. And now they say the same because we've expressed some skepticism about the COVID vaccines. But I think the problem with that argument is that it sort of takes it for granted that the measures being scrutinized are effective and do more good than harm. And we don't accept that premise, obviously. <laughs> so you can't, I don't think, suppress discussion and debate about COVID restrictions, the vaccines, by arguing before that debate has taken place, no, we're right about these measures, these interventions causing more good than harm. So any skepticism you express about them causing more good than harm will lead to harm. And I'm not sure even if a healthy period of open discussion and debate was allowed to take place before rules were then put in place about what isn't permissible to say, I'm not even sure that those rules would be a good idea after that. I mean, I think another problem with trying to suppress vaccine skepticism, say, is that you don't reduce vaccine hesitancy by suppressing vaccine skepticism. On the contrary, you probably increase it. And I think the reason there have been polio outbreaks in places like New York, it is precisely because people expressing skepticism about the COVID vaccines have found themselves kicked off social media platforms like Facebook and YouTube and aren't able to express their reservations in the public square and have a grown-up discussion about it. So people think, ah, oh, these big pharma companies, they've got something to hide. They were, they're not welcoming this scrutiny. What have they got to hide? Maybe I won't take this polio vaccine either. So I think even if it was true that the COVID vaccines did more good than harm, even if we knew that was true, God had told us, and there was no debate about it at all, I don't think that would be a good reason to suppress skepticism about those vaccines, because I think suppressing it would actually increase people's hesitancy when it came to taking them, not reduce it.
let me try a different example, which is less politicized. So there's good data to suggest that when people who are depressed hear about suicide in positive or neutral terms, that they're more likely to commit. And that when you reduce that spread, you reduce the number of suicides. So examples are in the reporting of famous people committing suicide, celebrities, that there's then a sudden rush of other suicides among people who've read the articles. Mm. And then there's a push to curb the production of those articles. The idea is that if a newspaper is going to report on suicide, they have to include a whole lot of disclaimers and they have to include helplines or they can't produce the article at all. Yeah. Would you support that kind of curbing? Because there you've got a real life harm being committed afterwards, mm. maybe not as a direct result, but pretty close causally. So that's a non-politicized example. I think if you can show that a particular kind of speech will lead to directly to imminent physical harm, then I think you've got a more robust case for censorship. But I think one of the difficulties with those kinds of arguments is that people very rarely appeal to that particular high standard. They often appeal to the idea that it's something can potentially cause harm. So in the case of suicides, for instance, I mean, quite a lot of gender critical views have been suppressed in the name of preventing trans kids from committing suicide or self-harming in other ways. Uh, and the social science evidence, insofar as there is any, pretty threadbare. So I think if you can show a direct causal relationship between a point of view being expressed or something being reported and imminent physical harm, then I think that would be a reason, a good reason for censoring it. But I think it's very difficult to show that. So if we think about how journalism has shifted over time, it used to be the case that you had a small number of news networks who the public would look to and they felt they could trust them. What we've had is massive competition, lots of different people putting out ideas. It's quite hard for the public to work out what's true, what's not, what is a political agenda. Do you think that we're moving in a positive direction? Is it better to have more ideas floating around, more competition? Or do you think that there's something to be missed about turning on BBC One and that's all there was and you could trust the, the journalists they were speaking to? Or was there always an agenda? We're now just more aware of it. Yeah, I think on balance, the media landscape we're in now is better and more balanced, less politically biased than it was probably 75 years ago, where there were just a few monopolistic providers who, as you say, were broadly speaking, trusted by most people. I think that, but I think that brands like the BBC, organizations like the New York Times, they have a huge amount of brand equity. There is still a huge amount of trust in those brands. And it isn't the fault, I don't think, of upstarts like GB News and Fox News and the Daily Skeptic expressing different points of view and criticizing the BBC from time to time. That's not the reason those brands are squandering that trust. It's because they aren't taking their responsibilities, I think, as journalists as seriously as they should. They're seemingly all too happy to go along with kind of high status groupthink on a whole range of issues, which is what creates an opportunity for websites like the Daily Skeptic, which challenge those prevailing orthodoxies. 
And I think there ought to be much more skepticism, much more challenge of prevailing orthodoxies by the BBC and by the New York Times and these other legacy media brands. And if they did that, I think they'd be much more trusted than they are. And I think that particularly came out during the period of the lockdowns when they were first rolled out in March and April of 2020. There was real suppression of any questioning of the wisdom of the lockdowns and associated COVID restrictions like mask wearing, social distancing. And the scientific basis for a lot of those measures was pretty threadbare. It seemed like governments around the world just panicking and wanting to be seen to be doing something so political opponents couldn't hang unnecessary deaths around their necks come election time. It seemed to me to be a policy that I think we're now beginning to understand caused far more harm than good. The cure was worse than the disease. And uh, had there been an opportunity to scrutinize those policy responses when they were being implemented in the mainstream media, we might not have kept them in place for so long. We might not have put them in place in the first place. So I think that's a good example, actually, of the media falling down on its job and uh, as a result, causing a lot of unnecessary harm. And it's for that reason, I think, that people are turning to alternative media voices and not because because people like Alex Jones are undermining trust in those organizations for completely spurious reasons. So you've spoken well about the benefits of the battle of ideas and skepticism and active conflict and discussion around which policies are correct. But there is a downside as well, which is that there's massive polarization in today's world between the left and the right. There's massive polarization on certain issues like COVID, pandemics, gun laws, closed borders. And it's not just that the views are becoming more diverse, but they're becoming quite extreme. It's more and more difficult to hold a middle ground on any given position or to hold different positions on different issues that generally don't go together in one basket. And that does seem like a problem. It does seem like a loss. One way of thinking about the loss here is that in the past, it was easier to hold a moderate position without being jumped on from both sides. So I'm an anarchist and I don't subscribe to either left or right wing ideas around certain issues. And I'm jumped on from both sides and both sides think that my position's insane. But that wasn't as much the case 10, 20 years ago. 10, 20 years ago, a moderate position was more respectable. That does seem like a problem with the culture wars or the battle of ideas. Yeah, I suppose I've got two responses to that. The first is, well, if it's the case that polarization is bad, then doesn't the blame lie with governments, international agencies, the mainstream media, universities, the kind of people at the top of knowledge hierarchies, doesn't the blame lie with them for essentially embracing a fairly narrow progressive agenda and um, suppressing any challenge to that agenda in various ways. And that has forced people that don't share that point of view elsewhere. And the only place for them to go is into the arms of people like Trump and Obama and the woman who's just won the <laughs> election in Italy. But I think my other response would be, well, is polarization really a bad thing? I mean, 
is moderation always preferable to a more extreme position on any issue? Well, doesn't it depend on the issue? I mean, you referred to the culture war and I've just read a book by Andrew Doyle called The New Puritans. And it's about the rapid rise of the critical social justice movement, which is his name for the kind of woke movement. And he acknowledges that there is a culture war, but he thinks it's a war between, on the one hand, people who believe in enlightenment values like truth and reason and science and evidence and data. And, and on the other, as well as kind of liberal values like free speech, the rule of law, representative government and so forth. And on the other, this kind of toxic cocktail of postmodernism and a kind of nihilistic desire to tear down all our institutions and to destroy liberal values. And so he thinks that we are engaged in an existential culture war, but that it's fine to be a combatant in that war and not position yourself somewhere in the middle of those two points of view, because one side is clearly the good guys and the other side are clearly the bad guys. And that's broadly where I think the culture war is. It's not between two equally extreme positions. It's between defenders of enlightenment, liberal values on the one hand, and these kind of postmodernist, nihilistic kind of revolutionaries who want to tear everything down on the other. And I don't think being in the middle on that particular issue is a good place to be. So my favorite newspaper, the newspaper I read every single day is Quillette. And it's been this wonderful safe haven for people that have been exiled from institutions. People who were these um, brilliant academics who've been kicked out for some kind of faux pas. And you worked there as an editor for a while. How successful do you think that project has been of having a long form publication with people who are not professional journalists writing about the culture wars, writing about ideas from a heterodox perspective? Yeah, I think it has been very successful. Far more successful, I think, than Claire Lehman, who started it in what, 2015, could have possibly imagined. And the reason it's been so successful is because there are so few spaces where academics and intellectuals and journalists and writers can express heterodox points of view. So it's become a kind of arc for people with heterodox opinions about a cluster of issues. I mean, it may be that I'm biased that I think of it this way, but I do think of the people who write for Colette and express those heterodox points of view and are on my side in the culture where I just described. I generally think they're smarter and better writers and more sympathetic human beings than the people on the other side. I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to read Judith Butler, but it's, it's pretty heavy going. And uh, the people on the other side in that particular culture war, the people who would rather smear and cancel people than enter into a debate with them, the people who want to kind of cast out anyone who expresses a heterodox point of view, cast them out, deprive them of their livelihood, hunt them as if they were witches in 17th century Salem. They're on the whole, not terribly nice people, not people you'd want to really be friends with because, you know, they might turn on you and they turn on each other all the time. So I think, I think Quillette has been a fantastic showcase for people on my side, probably your side too, on most of these issues. And, and I think it has been extraordinarily successful. And I think it largely, I don't, 
I left Quillette last year, but when I worked there, it largely depended upon donations from well-wishers via platforms like Patreon. And I think they've set up a kind of membership um, business model, whereby if you become a member, you get certain benefits, even though most of the content is still free, I believe. And that seems to be working very well. So I think it's, I mean, we're lucky that Claire is both kind of a believer in scientific truth and objectivity and will die in a ditch to defend it as well as being fairly broad-minded and probably on our side on most of these issues and also having some entrepreneurial flair. She's a gifted businesswoman as well. And that's a great combination. And that's why I think she's made it such a success. So I, I think your point is well taken that when there's disagreement on a certain issue, that sometimes one side is just obviously right. And that any kind of watering down of that correct view only makes it more incorrect. So a moderate stance between two positions isn't always the correct one. Sometimes one position is always correct. And you're on a philosophy show and we take stances on everything and our guests take stances on everything. And sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. But I think what's important is that often when you have polarization is that you lose nuance and perhaps not on every issue, but on certain issues, the nuance is where the truth lies. So sometimes nuance matters. And my concern in a highly politicized, highly polarized world where people are fighting tooth and nail for their position is that they don't give an inch. And it's often in that inch that the truth lies. And I start to worry that the fidelity is no longer to the truth, it's to a position. Yeah, I think that is a risk, but isn't that, you know, a feature of political discourse? It's unusual for people to give much ground when engaged in a fierce ideological dispute. I mean, I do sometimes feel in my own case, um, uh, I'll take a position on something like the lockdowns and, and it starts out being quite a nuanced position, but after engaging in various ferocious disputes and exchanges, it becomes less nuanced. And I think that is, that is one of the risks of being a kind of combatant in one of these culture wars. Yes. And I think the reason that happens is partly because that's just the nature of conflict, people do end up in entrenched, embattled positions. I, I interviewed Andrew Doyle, the author of The New Puritans, on stage at a Free Speech Union event last night, and we were exploring why it is that, for want of a better word, woke ideas have become so dominant across elite institutions. And he said that one reason is that thinking is hard. The natural human impulse is to do and respond in a way that requires the least mental effort. There's something almost painful, at least certainly very effortful about having to think hard about a problem. And, and that's another reason I think why people end up in these unnuanced positions, because thinking about them with any rigor and care is actually extremely hard and mentally taxing. And most people will avoid that labor if they possibly can. So Andrew Doyle is one of these brilliant satirical minds. You know, he's created such interesting characters and has a, not just a passion for free speech, but a, a passion for making fun of the foolish. What do you think the correct role of a satirist is? And do you think it's possible to be a good satirist in the current climate? Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, 
yeah, I do think it's possible to be a good satirist. And I think satire has suddenly taken on an importance that it hasn't had for quite some time. Now that free speech is under assault and there are just lots of things that you could say 15 years ago, you can't say now. And now that so many previously liberal institutions have been captured by this sort of authoritarian quasi-religious cult, satirists and particularly stand-up comedians have never been more culturally important. I went and saw Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle at the O2 horrible big venue in Greenwich a few weeks ago with my 17-year-old son. And the fact that Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle out there in the public square ridiculing the high priests and priestesses of the woke cult in a hilarious way is just fantastic and empowering. And I think emboldens people to challenge that dogma. It's back to the era of Lenny Bruce. I don't think comedians in particular have ever been more culturally significant. I mean, it is a great time to be a heterodox, politically incorrect stand-up comic. And Andrew Doyle, of course, is that as well as a brilliant author. And uh, he and another guy called Andy Shaw created this comedy night at a comedy club in Bethnal Green called the Backyard Comedy Club. And their evenings are called Comedy Unleashed. And they give a platform to, for want of a better phrase, politically incorrect comedians who often can't get booked anywhere else because comedy, of course, has been captured by the cult like everything else. And being at Comedy Unleashed and listening to these comics surrounded by people on your side in this particular culture war is fantastically liberating. I mean, it is a fantastic, great night out. Couldn't recommend it more highly if you're ever in London. So you've spoken about certain values that are very important to you, and I agree they are important values. Values like free speech, values like the ability to consider ideas carefully as you choose, values like representative government, although as the anarchist, I have to dim on representative government, but the idea that you don't want just total chaos, you don't want to just break everything down. But suppose there's someone who wants to do all of those things. So let's just say for a moment that this enlightenment culture was the dominant culture, and then you've got some agitators that are expressing very strong values that go in the opposite direction, that want to tear down free speech, that want to tear down institutions that have been doing a good job. Would you support demonetizing them? Well, that would be a good argument for deplatforming organizations like Black Lives Matter, which make no secret of the fact that they want to destroy the nuclear family, bring down capitalism and so forth. But no, I wouldn't want to deplatform those groups any more than I think it's permissible for them to deplatform sites like the Daily Skeptic. And incidentally, PayPal has demonetized some groups on the far left, presumably with something like that in mind. So the Socialist Workers Party, for instance, has been demonetized by PayPal, a couple of hard left anti-war websites in the US, Mint Publishing and Consortium News, anti-Ukrainian war, they're not necessarily pro-Putin, they were demonetized by PayPal. So, you know, I'd be as opposed to that as I would be the demonetizing of sites like the Daily Skeptic and organizations like the Free Speech Union. And I would worry that if they were, they were attacked and suppressed in that way, that might lend the ideas more credibility, give them a kind of charisma that they don't deserve. So the motto that you have under the Free Speech Union is Audi Alterum Partum. As a lawyer, it's a value that we cherish, this idea that you must hear both sides. And it seems that 
if you're going to run a free speech organization, one of the values that you have to adhere to is a notion of content neutrality. But you yourself could hold very strong views in one direction. So for example, you could think these postmodern cultural Marxists are totally and utterly wrong and that they're a cancer on our society. But let them speak. Do you find this a difficult task to balance, that you may end up advocating for the rights of people that you find uh, repugnant? We had Nadine Strassen on the show, and she talks about the importance of being able to protect speech because you might end up standing up for a bigot. The famous case they, the, they were involved in was Skokie, Illinois, where you had the American Nazi Party wanting to have a rally in a Jewish suburb. Not because they didn't stand up for them because they like Nazis, but because they realized that if you don't stand up for them, speech will be suppressed in other directions, that if the Nazis can't speak today, the Jews won't be able to speak tomorrow. How do you find the, the practical nature of doing this, of being able to advocate for free speech in a way that could assist your ideological opponents? Yeah, well, I don't think I'd find it difficult. And the Free Speech Union has gone to bat for people who espouse very different points of view to mine. I mean, I try and separate my own particular politics from the work I do as general secretary of the free speech union. And for the most part, that isn't difficult. I think that it creates a problem in another way, which is that because I'm a sort of outspoken conservative and because standing up for free speech is associated with one side in the culture war and people on the woke identitarian left think of defenders of free speech as defenders of hate speech and bigotry. It's become quite difficult to persuade organizations like the Socialist Workers Party to turn to the Free Speech Union for help if PayPal demonetizes them. We have, we have gone to bat for quite a few hard left folks, but not as many as I'd like. I mean, where I think we have been successful is I think a lot of old fashioned gender critical feminists were quite suspicious of the Free Speech Union when it first started two and a half years ago. But I think we've now helped so many feminists because they've simply had nowhere else to turn for help that we've begun to build that trust with that community. And that's been very gratifying.